Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Talk Recorded live. Good evening and welcome to this installation of, <laughs> did I say that right? The Women of the Revolution. My name is Susan Bonner. I'm here with Deb. And if you're joining us for the first time, this is an educational and historical uh, venue about the women of the revolution. How are you tonight, Deb? Oh, I'm just fine, thank you. Yes, um, I'm a little tired, ladies and gentlemen. If you hear it in my voice, I did a lot yesterday and I'm a little run down today. But we will continue and endeavor. Today, we are highlighting another loyalist. We go between loyalists and patriots. And I couldn't believe we started Loyalists a year ago, and we're still finding them. And we've been going on two and a half years. We're still finding women, which is amazing. But this Loyalist is Margaret Morris, and we are going to go back to the... Now, is this considered, Deb, the Middle Theater or the Northern Theater? Yeah, it's kind of the middle, middle, the lower north. I mean, well, the north goes all the way up to Canada, so right. this is kind of like in the middle. Okay. But We're going... Go ahead. ...an important area. Yes, this is... Uh, we're going to New Jersey, and New Jersey was basically... They had a couple of battles, which we will hopefully highlight, but basically it was like a corridor <laughs> between the British and the British forces coming from the middle going to the north and the Patriot forces coming from the north going to the middle going to the south. It was, there was a lot of traffic, a lot of traffic. And anybody who lived around this area got caught in the middle, and she actually did. Now, we've highlighted a lot of loyalists that, and most of the loyalist women were very courageous, and she's another one that is. We all have had a couple of loyalists that were real, real pieces of work. But by and far, the Loyalist women were in the thick of it just as much as the Patriot women. They suffered as much, if not more, because the, most of the Patriot women retained their stuff. A lot of them did get burnt out and the, and the natives came and took everything. But the Loyalists were targeted, which made a difference, wouldn't you say? Yeah, they, um, they, they became the enemy. Right, and as such, and we're going to talk about this because there's a group of men that go around, that are going to go around in her area, and when she, when Deb reads her journals, which is one of the things that we have on her, which is amazing because most of the time we, it's very hard for us to find any uh, journals or letters or anything about these women, but we were fortunate to find her, and she has journals, so we're going to be reading from her journals. And we are going to be talking about what's going on around her and about where she lives and all that good stuff. So this is Loyalist Margaret Morris. And Deb is going to start with introducing her. 
Um, this is from the AmericanRevolution.org website, which is one we often go to. They have a lot of good information on uh, both uh, both sides of the uh, the Revolutionary War. So this is uh, let's see, yeah, okay. This is um, uh, it has her journal here, but this is an introduction to her. A journal which has never been published, but of which a few copies were printed for private circulation many years since, kept during the Revolutionary War, for the amusement of a sister by Margaret Morris of Burlington, New Jersey, presents a picture of the daily alarms to which a private family was liable and of the persecution to which obnoxious individuals were subjected. The writer was a patriot in principle and feeling, but sympathized with the distresses she witnessed on both sides. She had, however, no liking for war, being a member of the Society of Friends, also known as the Quakers. Her maiden name was Hill. Her father, Richard Hill, had been engaged in the wine trade and lived long with his family on the island of Madeira. Her brother, Henry, accumulated a large fortune in the same business and died of the yellow fever in Philadelphia. Margaret was eminently pious and cheerful through many years of illness and suffering. In this character, she is best remembered by her grandchildren and connections, among whom she was greatly loved and venerated for her example of Christian benevolence and humble reliance on providence in every trial. She was left a widow early in life and died at the age of 79 at Burlington in 1816. The sister for whom the journal was written was Milka, M-I-L-C-A-H, Martha Moore, the wife of Charles Moore of Philadelphia. Now, a little more about her. Let's see. Uh, this is at the New Jersey Women's History dot org website, and they, they have uh, a little bit um, more on her. Uh, she was also a local medical practitioner living in Burlington when the Revolutionary War began, and she had four children between the ages of ten and seventeen um, at the time, and her sisters and father were living in Philadelphia. Her diary, written between December sixth and seventeen seventy six. Um, December 6, 1776, and June 14, 1777, is an important record of the early phase of the Revolution. It has been valued by historians for its information about the war and Washington's surprise Christmas Eve attack on the Hessian camp at Trenton. It is equally important for its insights into the experience of women during the war, seen through the private feelings and values of this one devout Quaker woman. She abhorred warfare but resolved to stay in her Burlington home, whatever may come. She witnessed the pillaging of local homes by both Hessian soldiers and American soldiers. She saw the vicious work of Tory hunters in her neighborhood and the destruction visited on local residents by gondola men who were patrolling the riverside. Resolved to remain serene, she aided those in need, regardless of the side they took during the conflict. So, okay, so this is Margaret, and it, it, you know what I find interesting is many of the women, especially, you know, those of the Quaker faith or the other pacifist faith um, thereabouts, and, and even women who, uh, who whose families were loyalist or patriot, 
they didn't, many of them didn't care what side of the, the fence you were on. It was, you were wounded, they took care of you. Um, th- that happened quite a, quite a lot in, in uh, the, you know, the research that we've done with uh, different women. It's, you know, it's, the men were out fighting, but the, the women were at home, and, uh, you know, if, if wounded came, they, they took care of them. Yeah, um, I think we're going to, I'm going to start with the history, and, and because you brought up Quakers and you brought up so much. <laughs> I'm going to start off with the history of New Jersey. We have done this before. I don't know if it's on this venue, and we used to be on Blog Talk Radio forward slash Halls of Valhalla. If you go there, um, you can look up Women of the Revolution. I don't know how many shows are going to come up. I, I have no idea what's going on over there. But since we're on a new venue this year, we're going to go back and, and revisit a lot of this uh, history as we're doing wherever the ladies live. Because I want to get into the history of New Jersey and then the very good two paragraphs on Quakers I found that will show why they were pacifists. And Quakers were pacifists if, if nobody knew that. They were. And there was a reason why. Now, that didn't mean that they didn't participate in certain aspects of the revolution. They did. But by and large, they wanted to stay out of it. And we have had a lot of uh, Quakers that were persecuted because of this, because they didn't take a stance. Uh, actually, we had a whole town. Remember, they had to have lights in their windows? Was that yeah. the... Yeah. Um, because the townspeople were going to go after them. So let me start with the history of New Jersey, which is kind of lengthy, but it will give a good overview of what this area was. This area was very contended. Um, New Jersey was not cut and dry. It was it really... Once you listen to this, I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, as far as, as the colony goes, this one was, a, it started out as a disaster. Yeah, yeah. A you lot know, it was. In that area, a lot went on in that area. Pre, well, from the, the 17th into the 18th century. Yeah. So this is from PhiladelphiaEncyclopedia.org. And this is West New Jersey, but it, it gets into the, the, the different parts of New Jersey because I didn't even know in the beginning when the colony was founded there was a West and East. And yeah. I don't think they still have a West and East New Jersey. No, they don't. They don't. Okay, so between 1674 and 1702, New Jersey was divided in half. The Bataiti West New Jersey colony faced the Delaware River while East New Jersey looked toward the Hudson. So... One was looking at New York, and one was looking at Delaware, one part. Although this political division lasted less than three decades, which uh, that's kind of a lot, (laughs) it represented longstanding geographical orientations of the Lenape and Muncie native inhabitants and European colonists. What is it? Lenape. Lenape? Okay. Mm -hmm. And Muncie. Benjamin Franklin repeatedly called New Jersey a barrel tapped at both ends a productive countryside exploited by Philadelphia and New York. While West New Jersey quickly came within Philadelphia's economic orbit, the region nonetheless retained a distinct political and social identity. Um, 
Native Americans lived in the Delaware Valley at least 10,000 years before the Dutch, Swedes, Finns, and English arrived in the 17th century. The Lenapes, is that what you said? Lenapes. Yeah, Lenapes, who controlled southern and western New Jersey, lived in autonomous towns along creeks leading to the Delaware River and along the Atlantic coast in the Delaware Bay. Some Lenape people, such as the Amawansis, forget about it, I'm not going to be able to do that, possessed land on both sides of the river in what are now Pennsylvania, Delaware, and New Jersey. Because Lenapes traveled frequently by canoe, they viewed rivers and streams as highways rather than obstacles, which is really interesting because then in Alaska, as a little aside, they view the rivers and streams also as the highways in the winter because when they freeze over, you can just walk across it or snowmobile across it, and they do that all the time. They actually have it on a on a, if you look on a map of Alaska, they'll have winter routes and they'll have uh, winter roads, and it's really all it is is lakes and streams. It's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Uh, prior to the founding of West New Jersey in 1674, European population in the region remained sparse. A small Dutch settlement on Makatingum, I have not, but it's now Burlington, and this is where she is from. She is from Burlington. Island lasted only from 1624 until 1626. Um, when, on a site across the river from current Philadelphia, Dutch traders established Fort Nassau. And a group of New Englanders in 1641 obtained the Lenape's permission to colonize several Delaware Valley locations, one at Varkins Kill, now Salem Creek, and the Dutch opposition and disease destroyed the colony. A small remnant of English settlers became part of the population of New Sweden, which existed from 1638 to 1655, primarily on the west bank of the Delaware. The Dutch conquered New Sweden in 1655 and held the Delaware colony until 1664 when English forces of James, Duke of York, took control. This is important because, again, this was a very contended area. And if you see, the other colonies didn't have this problem. They didn't have people conquering the existing um, colonists that came there because they, had, they all had charters, right? Yeah. Yeah, it was up north towards Canada when the, the French moved in. And then down south you had the Spanish, um, which had taken over Georgia and, and uh, Florida and westward somewhat. Uh, but for the most part, the, the, um, the eastern seaboard, northern and eastern seaboard colonies uh, were pretty stable by, by the end of... Uh, well, you know, they came. Let's see, Virginia was settled, um, you know, Jamestown. And then, you know, then there was Plymouth and uh, uh, in the early 1600s and even the 1500s. Um, but it was mostly the English who who took those places. So they were already. Yeah, they were already settled. And you, while, as I was reading this and then, getting more into what happened in the Revolutionary War, it seems that this piece of land was cursed. <laughs> I know. It's, it's like, oh, Jersey's not that big. <laughs> I know. It's so tiny. <laughs> but it's location, location, location. Exactly. That's exactly what this is all about. Okay, so a few Dutch and French colonists moved to southwestern New Jersey in the late 1660s purchasing land from the Lenape's. 
A few years later, Swedish and Finnish settlers followed suit, departing from the West Bank of the Delaware River in the rebellion against English land policies, including assessment of quiet trends and exploration of common lands. The English king, Charles II, initiated the proprietary colony of New Jersey in 1664 when he granted his brother James, Duke of York, the rights of proprietorship, including the power to govern and ability to own and sell land. The duke, in turn, granted New Jersey to Sir John Berkeley and Sir George Carteret. In 1664, the proprietorship of New Jersey was divided in half, with Berkeley taking West New Jersey, which he promptly sold to John Fenwick, in trust for Edward Billinge. When the English Quakers, Frederick and Billinge, quarreled, three Quaker trustees, including William Penn, mediated the dispute. Adding to these difficulties, the Duke of York refused to transfer the power to govern West New Jersey to the Quaker proprietors. Now, could you imagine being the people of this colony, Deb, with all this going on? And, like, what the heck is going to happen to me? Yeah, yeah. You know? I mean, this is chaos. It is. It's, it's, it's kind of like Winchester, where I live. Well, I live north of Winchester. But Winchester, during the Civil War, changed hands between the north and the south 71 times in the duration of the Civil War. The women of the, of the town would have to go to the courthouse to check to see who was in control, charge, you know, when they came into into town to do anything, they had to check in. So that's what it reminded me of was, you know, you never knew who was in charge. <laughs> yeah, that's, you know, goodness gracious. So you know what I'm going to do since I'm mentioning the Quakers and that she is a Quaker, I'm going to go into this little de- um, definition of what Quakers were. All righty. Okay, so this is from qhpress.org. Considering the history of any society, it is, the fir- it is of first importance to note its origin and if it is a branch or formed out of an older society, then the history of the parent organization should be examined for that purpose. As the three Quakers were originally Orthodox friends, their history will not be complete without some consideration of the nature of the Quakers and their peculiarities of faith and practice. For my screen is like... For... Before the Revolutionary War, the societies were identical. This is how briefly to be done at the risk of repeating what has been better said before. The organized followers of the religious teachings of George Fox called themselves friends, for they professed themselves to be friends, not merely of each other, but of all mankind. And that I never knew. And I know we did the Quakers before. But I never understood that why they were called friends. They called themselves friends. So they didn't, they, they, this is another reason why they were pacifists, because they thought of everybody as all of mankind, not just a patriot or a loyalist, right? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, which is why it didn't matter who was wounded. Right, and that's what you had said when you had read her introduction. Mm-hmm. Their more common appellation of Quakers was applied to them in derision by their enemies. Their belief was based upon this idea. They conceived it to be their duty strictly to follow the divine commands as contained in the Bible according to their understanding of it. And from this, they made the further deduction that where God's command and human law seem to be in conflict, 
they obeyed what seemed to them to, to be the divine command and willingly suffered the consequences, whatever they might be. They understood the Bible to contain an order to all men to swear not all, from which they inferred not only that profane swearing was forbidden, but also that the oath taken by witnesses and jurors in judicial proceedings is equally immoral and wrong. They read the Holy Writ that all men are equal in the sight of God, and they therefore spoke of and addressed men of all ranks by name and not by title, and refused to show any mark of respect to any earthly magistrate. They read the divine command so far as possible to live at peace with all men and interpret this to mean a total prohibition of all war or strife, offensive or defensive, and they thereupon refused to serve in the army or to make or trade in any munitions of war or even to pay military taxes laid upon them with their fellow subjects by lawful authority. They, they read that the apostles left all they had to follow the Lord and were mostly poor and unlettered men, enlightened directly by the Spirit of God. Now, this, and this is what we were talking about the Puritans as well, because when they, when they this, is, this is where their origins are, but, and you have to agree with me, when they came to the new land, things were different. They couldn't strictly adhere to this, and also because the Enlightenment period was coming into, into fruition. They started to change their views, even though they kept the pacificity, I didn't say that right, being pacifist, they evolved because um, they were in harsh environment. It was all new. They were all left to their own devices. And so they started to change and not be as strict as they are here, right? Yeah, and that happened that happened to a lot of the different religious sects actually. Um because because people were were um well when they first came here, you know, they were they were in little villages or little compounds, you know, little forts. They set up forts. And they like you said, they were on their own and they had to work it out for themselves. And sometimes what was um viable in ancient Europe compared to, you know, the brand new new world, uh didn't always work. <laughs> you know, and some of it was not really even um appropriate or or uh um it didn't work it just oh I just lost my internet connection again. Um, you know, it just didn't work. So they had to they had to be flexible, you know, adapt or die. Really? Oh. Okay, come on now. I'm I'm trying to get my my internet up, so go ahead. Okay. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's what made And I really cannot stand the prods making fun of this um concept or even the, using this. When they say rugged individualism, it it's like a curse word to me because they're really scorning us for being that. But the reason that we were is because um, we had to be for survival. And we were, we, we were that kind of a people. We evolved that way. Also, this whole diversity stuff, we've been diverse since the beginning, founding of this nation. We always have. But we were diverse in Christianity, not in anything else, when they, when they talk about religion, because everyone was a Christian that came to this place. Even the Jews, they were still they were still Judeo-Christian morals and um, practices and beliefs. 
So, okay, uh, back to West New Jersey. Complicated financial deals and lawsuits arising from the dispute between Fenwick and Billinge resulted in two initial Quaker settlements in West New Jersey, Salem founded in 1675 and Burlington in 1677. Again, that's why I'm doing the history of New Jersey because she's in Burlington. So she was part of um, Billington's uh, West New Jersey settlement, or she's an ancestor from that. Fenwick demanded one-tenth of the West New Jersey proprietorship to launch his own settlement, which conflicted with the intentions of Billings and the trustees for a unified colony. Billings wanted to give Fenwick his tent in scattered places across West New Jersey, but instead, without Billings' assent, Fenwick took his one tent in a single location, which he called Salem, and sold 148,000 acres to about 50 purchasers. You have to remember, everyone's like, I know they're scratching their heads because they're thinking of New Jersey now. New Jersey was wilderness, people. Yeah. It's really hard to imagine. I know, but it's true. I know. Because there's like only a tiny, tiny part of New Jersey right now that that is even wooded. <laughs> I mean, there's more upstate New York as much as like the size of New Jersey. And, and it, it's still, you know, pretty much rural. Not, not terribly, but New Jersey, no, not so much. But it was back then. <laughs> yeah, and you have to think Boston used to be an island practically. I know, I know. The Quaker colonists arrived in southern New Jersey in 1675, entering a country dominated by the Leampies, where some Europeans, mostly Swedes, Finns, and Dutch, had settled during the previous decade. Fenwick promptly purchased land from the Leampies of the region, I'm sorry, I'm just tired, with whom he maintained good relations. Deeds of 1675 and 1676 specified that Fenwick would receive territory, accepted always the plantations in which the natives now inhabit in return for cloth, rum, guns, and other items. Despite these deeds, Salem's status remained insecure because Fenwick, as a result of financial difficulties and legal challenges, lacked English title, deeds, and right to govern. Governor Edmund Andros of New York, who for the Duke of, who for the Duke of York until 1680, claimed authority over both banks of the Delaware, jailed Fenwick in New York for two extended periods, leaving the land claims of the Salem colonists unclear. So they're just, they have no idea. And they, this is amazing to me. They have no idea who they are, you know, what, there's, okay. We want government. You need limited government. Maybe, Deb, you can explain this a little bit better. This is anarchy, where these people are right now. And, they're between two major colonies, especially New York was a, was a big colony, and it was really settled. Delaware was settled. They were not. And you, you have to have some sort of a government structure to deal with, well, with this. They would be dealing with other colonies, and they would be dealing and trading with or manu, you know, giving goods to England. But they had no one to broker this for them. So that just puts them in a really bad situation. See, everyone thinks that when we talk about having big government, that we don't want government at all. We, as a humankind, you need some form of government. Am I explaining this correctly? Yeah, you need you need um, uh, uh, 
you need a government to take care, basically, how the founders describe it is, is everyone is busy tending to their own. So you need representatives to take care of the certain things that you can't take care of, like foreign policy, military, you know, um, keeping the colony slash country safe. Uh, you know, these are these are things that you need a, a a core that that will take care of all. You know, the the big things that you know your your uh, Joe citizen can't do, and if you let everybody take care of everything, nothing gets taken care of. So you have to have a, a core in agreement on laws and and the such so that you know that it is taken care of so that you can go about your daily business. I mean, that's why it's a representative republic that was founded. And that, you know, it's not... It's, it's, and it gives... But it gives the people... Rights. No, it doesn't give people. No, it it protects the people's rights. Make sure that the people, which is why it's so upside down right now. You needed the core to protect your rights to go about your life and to deal with, um, you know, overseas things and and uh, trade and um, and like I said, you know, the military with wars and whatnot. Um, it just makes sense because if you don't have it, you you're, you have anarchy. Everybody's taking care of it themselves, and and nobody's agreeing on anything. And you have to have the the core in agreement. Well, and that's why they made the Mayflower the Mayflower Compact when they first came to the New World. The um, what am I thinking of? <laughs> Who came on the Mayflower? Pilgrims. The pilgrims. When they first came, they made the Mayflower Compact because they wanted to start to organize a, a government for what you just said. But that didn't mean that the government was taking over their entire life. That's the difference. And that was the big balance that the founding fathers wanted to have between anarchy and complete control, which they did a fine job of and we screwed it up. <laughs> and it's totally upside down now. Yep. Right. Up, upside down backwards world. Yep, checks and balances are very important. In, in 1676, the Quaker trustees and Edward Billings implemented plans for settling the other 90% of West New Jersey. Billings probably drafted the initiative, the West New Jersey Concessions, that described the process for distributing land, granted religious freedom and trial by jury, and set out a plan for mediation of disputes between Lenapes and Europeans. And look, this is way before, way, way before the Declaration of Independence and the uh, Constitution. We were already doing this. A trial by jury was, it was a joke in England. They, they kind of had a certain trial by jury, but it, they really, us as colonists, we knew that that was a joke, um, that the king and whoever lord could just do whatever they wanted to you. So we were already being free. We were already setting up the foundation for the Constitution. 
Um, male pro- property owners resident in West New Jersey would annually elect a general assembly by putting balls into ballot boxes rather than by the confused way of cries and voices that was common in other places. The Duke of York delayed implementation of the concessions by not transferring until 1680 the right of government to a village, who then renounced the concessions by becoming governor, an office not including in the document. Nevertheless, through the concessions failed to become the official West Jersey Constitution, the document suggests the ideals of the colonists who signed it. Many provisions of the concessions included the elected assembly, religious freedom, and trial by jury became New Jersey law. In 1677, Village and the trustees sent the ship Kent with 230 friends to establish the Burlington Colony, appointing nine commissioners to govern until an assembly could be elected. When the Kent stopped first to inform Andrews of their plans to settle, he denied liberty to the Quakers to establish their own government, but agreed to appoint the trustees' commissioners as magistrates to report to him. Andros also charged the passengers duties on their cargo, creating considerable ill will. In response to appeals from Billinge and the trustees in 1680, the Duke of York transferred the right of government to Edward Billinge, ending the custom fees and meddling of the New York government. An estimated 1,760 friends settled in West New Jersey by 1682, but after that date, most Quaker immigrants accepted William Penn's invitation to settle in his new Quaker colony of Pennsylvania. This is kind of important because of where she is and she's still a Quaker, which means she's a pacifist, but to the Patriots, that means she's a loyalist, correct? Yeah. The Swedes, Finns, and Leannup, I know I'm saying it wrong, offered the Burlington colonists assistance despite worry about their increasing numbers. The Swedes and Finns provided shelter soon after the Kent arrived and helped the West New Jersey commissioners purchase land from the Leannupies. Please correct me. Lenape. Thank you. Lenapes. The winter of 1677 to 78 came before the new settlers could begin constructing Burlington, so they built wigwams like the Lenapes and depended upon the natives for corn, vegetables, venison, fish, and fowl. Unfortunately, the Burlington colonists brought smallpox that, like earlier epidemics, killed many Lenapes. And this, just take this all with a grain of salt, ladies and gentlemen, because we've already disputed a lot of this stuff that all these Indians helped all the settlers and blah, blah, blah. I mean, the pilgrims didn't even get off the ship for the first three months, so all that was a load of dung. <laughs> so take this. I know the smallpox did kill a lot of the natives, but take it with a grain of salt. During the propriety period from 1674 to 1702, because before that... I'm not going to get into the weeds. The West New Jersey colonists organized themselves much like their their native Indian native neighbors native neighbors yeah in autonomous communities governed by local officials loosely affiliated with neighboring colonial and native settlements. Billinge and the trustees founded Burlington as the seat of West New Jersey government, but county courts in Burlington, Salem, Gloucester, and Cape May provided stability during the proprietary years. Centralized government from Burlington was impossible because of the distance between small dispersed settlements and because contested land claims power struggles, and the English government's efforts to repeal the proprietorship created a power vacuum at the top. Now, is it just me, though, uh, 
Deb, this is kind of important. Well, yeah. Yeah. Because they're not really getting established anytime soon. No. Well, I, nobody's quite clear on who's in charge. I mean, the English government always wants to be in charge. I mean, that's just a given. <clears throat> but then you have the Quakers who don't look to man's government so much. Right. Exactly. And that's uh, that's proving a problem. And again, this is where she's living now, Burlington, with this history. Okay? <laughs> that's why we're trying to do this. Um, the county courts, as dem- demonstrated by their minutes, provided effective government by punishing crime, hearing disputes, and collecting taxes for roads, bridges, and public buildings. A murder case in Salem in 1691-92 to provides one example of how the local magistrates sustained government despite chaos at the provincial level. Um, I'm going to go all the way down at the end. The proprietary colony of West New Jersey dissolved in 1702 when the proprietors of both East and West New Jersey surrendered their right of government to the English crown. So England won. Mm-hmm. The proprietors were under numerous pressures, including charges that the colonies were ungovernable, fractionalized, and defiant against imperial rule. Though English administrator Edward Randolph suggested that the country is too large and the inhabitants too few to be contained to be contained a separate government. Therefore, East Jersey ought to be annexed to New York and West Jersey to Pennsylvania and the three lower counties. The Crown decided on the unified province of New Jersey. The assembly of 24 members, equally divided by section, would rotate meetings between Perth Amboy and Burlington. The governor of New York, Edward Hyde, Lord Cornbury, assumed office as the first New Jersey royal governor in 1703. Wow. Yeah. Who would have thought? I know. Little New Jersey, huh? Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So, which, um, you're going to start with the essays on um, Margaret? Yes. Okay. Okay, let's see which one starts earliest. Or do they both start? No, no. New Jersey uh, Women um, History Blog. Right. Starts on December 6, 1776. She writes, Being on a visit to my friend, M.S., at Haydenfield, I was preparing to return to my family when a person from Philadelphia told us the people there were in great commotion, that the English fleet was in the river and hourly expected to sail up to the city that the inhabitants were removing into the country and that several persons of considerable repute had been discovered to have formed a design of setting fire to the city and were summoned before the Congress and strictly enjoined to drop the horrid purpose. When I heard the above report, my heart almost died within me and I cried, Surely the Lord will not punish the innocent with the guilty. And I wish there might be found some interceding lots and Abrahams among ours our people. On my journey home, I was told the inhabitants of our little town were going in haste into the country and that my nearest neighbors were already removed when I heard this. I I felt myself quite sick and I was ready to faint. I thought of my SD, the beloved companion of my widowed state, her husband at the distance of some hundred miles from her. 
I thought of my own lonely situation, no hum husband to cheer with the voice of love, my seeking spirit, my little flock too, without a father to direct them how to steer. All these things crowded into my mind at once, and I felt like one forsaken. A flood of friendly tears came to my relief, and I felt a humble confidence that he who had been with me in six troubles would not forsake me now. While I cherished this hope, my tranquility was restored, and I felt no sensations but of humble acquiescence to the divine will, and was favored to find my family in health on my arrival, and my dear companion not greatly dis de discomposed, for which I favor I desire to be made truly thankful. And then December 8th. Every day begins and ends with the same accounts, and we here today, the regulars, are at Trenton, some of our neighbors gone and others going make our little bank look lonesome, but our trust in Providence still firm, and we dare not even talk of removing our family. And then the 13th. The spirit of the devil still continued to rove through the town in the shape of Tory hunters. Some of the gentlemen who entertained the foreigners were pointed out to the gondola men. Two worthy inhabitants were seized upon and dragged on board. Parties of armed men rudely entered the houses in town and diligent search made for hunt for Tories. The two last taken, released, and set on shore. Some of the gondola gentry broke into and pillaged our Smith's house on the bank. December 24th. Several Hessians in town today. They went to Dan Smith's and inquired for several articles in the shop, which they ordered, offered to pay for. Two were observed... Oh, gosh, I'm having a hard time reading tonight, too. Two were observed to be in liquor in the street. They went to the tavern and, calling for rum, ordered the man, in charge, the man to charge it to the king. We hear that two houses in the skirts of the town were broken open and pillaged by the Hessians. Do you want me to go into January? Or do you want to talk about the Hessians? Are you there? Hello? Did I lose you? Uh oh. Okay. Oh, good. I, I am I still here? Am I here? Is anybody there? Huh.
Okay, Susan, are you there? Susan, what happened? I think our our uh, our uh, show just went down the tubes. I don't know if we are being recorded or not. This is this is terrible. <laughs> I'm so sorry, people. If if we're still on air, I, I apologize for the technical difficulties. Things just seem to uh, to do this. Um, let's see. Unmute all. I have unmuted all. Yeah, we're still going. The call is being recorded, so it looks like. Um, but Susan doesn't seem to be here. Um, so, anyways. Oh, let's see. What can we do? Where was I? Well, I'll I'll continue. Um, We'll we'll go into January. I'll still read the the, the journal, and then we can get into some other things. And hopefully Susan will be back with us soon. She probably lost connection, too. Um, We both live up, you know, well, she lives way up higher than I am, but I'm on a ridge, and she's on a mountain and we sometimes do lose our our connections uh they they don't seem to have the uh, rural areas quite up to the city uh status so i will continue on here and hopefully um things will work out uh let's see where was i i was going into january so let's go into January. Now, this is 1777, and um, it's the 3rd of January. And she says, about that time, I went in the next house to see if the fires were safe, and my heart was melted with compassion to see such a number of my fellow creatures lying like swine on the floor fast asleep, and many of them without even a blanket to cover them. It seems very strange to me that such a number should be allowed to come from the camp at the very time of the engagement, and I shrewdly suspect they have run away, for they can give no account why they came, nor where they are to march next. Uh, this is this was a, a really important time um, in, for New Jersey in, in this area. Uh let me see. Will uh, there was the the uh, crossing of the Delaware and the Battle of Trenton, and um, let's see where. Yes, Washington's troops crossed New Jersey from New York in 1776, chased by the British after the fall of New York to the British in late December 1776 to mid-January 1777. He, in turn, chased the British out of most of New Jersey. Now, the Battle of Trenton um, and Princeton are connected and part of a campaign against the British forces forces in New Jersey during the American Revolution. Um, This is a general account of that campaign. In the fall of 1776, Washington was in desperate straits, having been defeated in Long Island and having to retreat from New York city, which being surrounded by water, was found to be indefensible from the British with their naval mobility and larger force. Leaving most of the army under Major General Charles Lee in Westchester, he crossed into New Jersey. 
Fort Washington on Manhattan Island was captured by the Hessians, and Fort Lee, opposite the Hudson on the Jersey Shore, was about to be attacked. Washington ordered the stores removed and the troops to prepare for evacuation. General Howe, the British commander, for once moved quickly, and the troops had to rush out of the fort barely ahead of the British, who found stew still cooking on their fires on the fort when they arrived. The British failed to move on New Bridge over the Hackensack River, and the American force escaped. The British might have trapped the army on the peninsula between the Hackensack River and the Hudson, but moved only to capture Fort Lee. Before the war, General Howe had supported the American efforts in reducing their grievances and hoped to have victory without a great deal of bloodshed. November 1, 1776, Washington moved south with the troops from Fort Lee, desperately ordering the rest of the troops under General Lee in Westchester, New York, to join him. Lee, probably seeing a chance to make himself look good in comparison to Washington, it was a continuing problem to get people to act for the good of the country and not for themselves in all areas of government during the war. Some things just never change, do they? And also wanting an independent command, acted very lackadaisically and moved very slow to join him. Lee wanted to show he could succeed against the British where Washington could not by attacking their flank and rear and leaving Washington out on a limb. Yeah, this is the 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 General Lee that uh, that uh, well, he was downright treasonous when it came to Washington. He he tried to smear him and conspired against him and got into Congress and tried all terrible things to because he wanted to be Commander in Chief. He was a bit of a not nice person, but anyways. So, Washington moved south first to Newark and waited for the New Jersey militia to rally. Few showed up for the past several months. The men of New Jersey were supposed to alternate serving a month on duty in the militia, and now they were fed up with it, stayed with their families. Many states had a hard time getting anyone new to serve in the Army, and as the British seemed to be unbeatable. The revolution seemed to be failing, and most people wanted to not get involved, faced with Invasion by the famed British regulars. Every kind of support for the war was failing, and all over, troops even had a hard time getting permission to sleep in barns or for buying food or clothing. Washington moved to New Brunswick, leaving Newark on the 28th, with the British entering the town as the Americans left. While in New Brunswick, two brigades of the flying camp, a unit set up to respond quickly to attacks from Staten Island by the British, had their terms of enlistment expire, and 2,026 demoralized men refused to re-enlist, even with the enemy just a short march away. Many more deserted. Washington with 3,000 men left to him, not all fit or able. Now, there was a, you know, illness and, and uh, lack of supplies, disease, and all sorts of things um, would take men out of uh, the action, as well as wounded and... and uh, you know, the dead. So it was a tough time for Washington at this time. Let's see if Susan, hold on a minute. I want to go see if Susan's back with us here. Um, no, I don't see her. Uh, I don't know what's going on with her, so I will continue. Um, let's see. On the 1st of December, now this is the same month that, that I was just reading from Margaret's uh, journal, on the 1st of December, the British forces moved to New Brunswick, and Washington orders the troops to begin moving to Princeton. While a few units 
hold the bridge, the rest escape. Finally, yeah, yeah well, there you are. Okay, um, TalkSuit kicked me off. Yeah, I know, I got kicked off too. Oh, you did? That's why I didn't hear you? Yeah, so I started up again, and well, the, the show is still going, and I called in again, and I've just been, I read um, up till January 3rd on her journal, and now I'm reading about the Battle of Trenton because this is the time period of which he's writing. Okay, did you, did you explain what the gondola men were? Oh, no, it kind of did in the introduction. They were, you know, patrolling the river. They were the, you know, the ones that, that were going after the Tories and okay. watched out for British. All right, I'm going to plug in my headset, and you let me know if you can hear me, all right? Okay. <laughs> Nothing like live shows, huh? So... See, we can <clears throat> while we're waiting for her to plug in her headset, we can let's see where was I? All right. Once at Princeton, Washington, with less than four hundred men with him, fell back to Trenton along the Delaware River, the border with Pennsylvania, on December second. Lee was very slowly moving across the state, and General Green had a force covering Washington at Princeton, and other units were scattered around the state. 2,000 Pennsylvania militiamen joined Washington at Trenton. Washington had all the boats available along the river taken and held on the Pennsylvania side of the river with his supplies, then moved back to Princeton on the 7th. Repeatedly, he called for Lee to come to his support and called for the New Jersey militia to rally to him. The militia showed up in disgustingly small numbers. Most men stayed home to protect their families from the advancing invaders, moving possessions out of the way of the British and Hessians. The British and Hessians destroyed Jersey homes, farms, and possessions wantingly and saw little difference between loyalist and rebel, treating most the same. As Washington moved to Princeton, General Greene was faced with the advancing British and forced to retreat. Joining Washington, the combined army now moved back to Trenton and then across the river. Washington had every boat that could be found moved to safety across to the Pennsylvania side. The scene was set for the Battle of Trenton. Lee continued to refuse to come to Washington until he was captured in Basking Ridge, New Jersey, by Lieutenant Colonel Harcourt leading British Dragoons on December 13th. Under the leadership now of Sullivan, the troops then quickly made their way to Washington. At the same time, General Gates had moved down from Fort Ticonderoga with 800 men to Washington's aid. Both units crossed the Delaware around Phillipsburg and reached Washington on the 20th of December. Reaching the Delaware on the 8th, Howe is cannonaded from across the river. After a fruitless search for boats up and down the river, Howe decides to stop for the winter. The American army was virtually helpless at this point, ragged, demoralized, greatly outnumbered, undertrained, and badly equipped. Howe lost a major chance to end the war by stopping for the winter instead of foreclosing the mortgage, as one of his officers called it. General Howe placed his troops across the state with major commands at Trenton, Burlington, Princeton, Perth Amboy, and New Brunswick. The Hessians, who had borne the brunt of the assault on Fort Washington in New York, showing courage and discipline, had the honor of being to the front in Trenton and Burlington. Howe recognized 
that his men were too spread out, but the American army was in such poor shape and so demoralized they were not considered a threat. The British forces had crossed the state almost unopposed. The militia had refused to join Washington. Many of his troops on hand were under short enlistment due to expire at the end of the month. Desertion was rampant. Everyone was discouraged. Half the people had never really supported the rebellion, and now they infected the rest. The new republic looked to be on its last legs, and Washington perhaps wondered if he would be hung, drawn, and quartered as a traitor under British law. Still, everything was not going all the right way for the British. The Jersey men, while not joining Washington, had not reacted passively to being invaded, and the poor behavior of the British and Hessian troops enraged many. Ambushes of British patrols became a standard tactic. Morris County had several units of militia assembled, while some continental troops and more troops were around Paramus in the northeast. New Jersey irregular troops, acting in small groups, uncoordinated and fueled by anger at the horrible plundering by both the Hessians and British, raided the enemy to capture supplies, ambushed patrols, harassed communications and movements. On December 18th, General Grant, under Cornwallis in New Brunswick, ordered that nothing belonging to the Army, even officers, leave New Brunswick without an escort. The local men of New Jersey couldn't seriously hurt the British, but they could make them cautious and reduce their ability to get information by patrolling. Along the river, Von Donop was placed in charge of the Hessians, stationed at Burlington, Trenton, and with posts at Mansfield Square and Black Horse Tavern. In Trenton, three regiments of Hessians, about 1,000 men, were under the command of Colonel Rall. Rall was ordered to build field works needed to defend the town, but did not. Rall told one of his officers who wanted to build redoubts, let them come, we want no trenches, we'll use the bayonet. Small raids worried his troops and ambushes distressed his dragoons. He was forced to increase the size of his picket posts, which created a lack of rest for his troops. Still, Rall had no fear of the American army, which seemed, to re- re- seemed ready to dissolve in the face of winter. Indeed, everyone in the American camp felt the situation to be desperate. Colonel Joseph Reed wrote Washington that something must be attempted to revive our expiring credit, give our cause some degree of reputation, and prevent a total depreciation of the continental money, which is coming in very fast, that even a failure cannot be more total than to remain in our present situation. Washington admitted in a letter that the game was about up. On December 22nd, Washington had 4,707 rank-and-file troops fit for duty. Washington had a staff meeting and decided to attack. At first, he wanted to attack Vandana up at Bordentown, but the militia in the area under Colonel Griffith were too weak. The Hessians in Trenton were in exposed position, and it was known that they could heartily celebrate Christmas on the night of December 25th. Washington decided on a pre-dawn attack on the 26th while the troops and officers were tired and hopefully some suffering hangovers. It is a misconception that the Hessians were expected to be drunk. Some of the officers might have expected to party late into the night, but not the troops. Washington ordered the troops ferried across just after dark, but a storm arose. First snow, then freezing rain, snow, and hail. Washington's aide, Colonel John Fitzgerald, wrote at 6 p.m. as the troops started across. It is fearfully cold and raw, and a snowstorm is setting in. The wind northeast and beats into the faces of the men. It will be a terrible night for those who have no shoes. Some of them have tied only rags around about their feet. Others are barefoot. 
but I have not heard a man complain. Colonel Glover's regiment from Marblehead, Marblehead, Massachusetts, who were primarily sailors, manned the boats at McConkie's Ferry. They managed to get 2,400 men, their horses, and 18 cannon across the icy river. Two other units, one to the cross to the south of Trenton at the Trenton Ferry and one further south of Bristol, were unable to cross and unable to land on the other side due to the storm and ice. The southern crossings were to prevent the escape of the Hessians and to prevent Von Donop from supporting Trenton. Fortunately, Von Donop at Burlington had moved south in response to the group of New Jersey militia troops under Colonel Griffin raiding towards him a few days earlier and was out of position to support Rawl and Trenton. Delayed by the storm, Washington's troops did not get across until 4 a.m., well behind schedule for a pre-dawn attack. They marched south to Trenton in two columns, one along the river, the other along the Pennington Road, with General Sullivan and Green commanding, Washington commanding overall, and riding with Green. In a severe winter storm, the troops advanced south. By 6 a.m., they must have been complaining. In fact, it is reported that two men froze to death. But Washington is determined. General Sullivan sends word that the men's muskets will not fire due to being exposed to the storm all night. You know, you hear the uh, expression, keep your powder dry. Well, there's one reason. Washington sends word back to rely on the bayonet. I am resolved to take Trenton. In Trenton, Hessian Major DeKau decided, because of the severe storm, not to send out the normal pre-dawn patrol, including two cannon, to sweep the area for signs of the enemy. Though the storm caused extreme misery for the troops, it allowed them to approach undetected. At 8 a.m., Washington's party inquires of a man chopping wood where the Hessian sentries are, just outside of Trenton. He points to a nearby house, and the Hessians pour out and begin to open fire. The Battle of Trenton is on. Moving quickly and driving in the pickets, both columns move in on the small town of Trenton. The Hessians are caught completely unappeared. Colonel Rall, who was up late at night, is slow to awaken and dress. The Hessian officers tried to rally and form their troops, but the Americans moved too quickly for them. The Hessians are constantly disrupted by fast American moving units charging in and moving to cover all routes in or out of town. American cannon are placed on a rise that controls the two main streets of the town, and the Hessian formations are unable to form properly. They try to get some of their own cannon into action, but these are captured before they can do any damage. The Americans move rapidly and aggressively, closing in on the Hessians, breaking up their formations and blocking all exits from town and seem to be everywhere to the Hessians. The Hessians moved around in town trying to make a front, but some orders are misunderstood and the Van Nifausen, I think that's how you say it, regiment is separated from Rawl and Von Lossberg regiments. The 3rd Regiment of Hessians on the, um, oh, no, wait a minute. Now the Hessians have wet gums from the storm and have a hard time firing. When they get again into the streets of the town, the American troops, joined by some civilians from the town, fire at them from buildings and from behind trees and fences, causing confusion. While the American cannon break up any formations, Rawl is badly wounded and resistance falters. They retreat back to the orchard, but are surrounded by the fast-moving Americans. The Hessians surrender. The 3rd Regiment of Hessians on the south side end of town, trying to get across the creek to head towards Bordentown, are delayed 
by trying to bring their cannon through a boggy area and suddenly find themselves surrounded and surrender as well. Many Hessians escape in small groups, but 868 are captured, 106 are killed or wounded. The American army lost perhaps four men wounded and two or three frozen to death, captured 1,000 arms, several cannon and ammunition and stores, and the fighting lasted only 90 minutes. About 600 Hessians, most of which had been stationed on the south side of the creek, escaped. After the battle, Washington had the captured men and stores shipped across the river, then followed with the army across to Pennsylvania. The next day, a 1,000 men reported ill. Von Dollop, commanding at Burlington, learned of the battle from fleeing Hessians who had escaped. Their estimates of the size of the force with Washington were exaggerated. Rumors of attacks pending on them flew thick based on partial spy reports of various plans of Washington and the British forces all across the state were worried. Von Dollop moved first to Allentown, New Jersey, then to Princeton to resist attacks that were just rumors. Washington had turned the tide from desperate waiting for the axe to fall to aggressive victor, chasing the British forces from the Delaware River and putting them on the defensive, well, for a few days. And uh, you can um, you can read uh, the letter that Washington wrote describing the action at uh, double cv.com and the title is the first american christmas and uh then there was the the second battle of, of trenton and the battle of princeton which we'll get in in a little bit well i want to get into what the this this is very important that they have an overview of how important that this battle was because of the hessians and i had wanted to get into the hessians before you got into this but it doesn't matter because you kept saying that you know what the Hessians did, but I do want to give the folks a little overview of these Hessian mercenaries because this was not a great feat. Uh, I mean, this was a great feat that they did, and I'm going to tell you why. So, this is the history junkie. I love that title, by the way, Deb. Oh, <laughs> the history junkie. Okay, so the Hessians. The Hessians were mercenaries hired by the British during... Now, before I go on, where were you in her uh, journal? Uh, were you I, still on the history blog? I was over on... Um, let's see, I, I was at the New Jersey Women History Bog, Bog, Blog. Um, I finished reading January 3rd. All right, hold on. Let me get a look at this. January 3rd, 1777. Yeah. Okay. All right. So let's go back to the Hessians because this is an, this is important to realize who these people were. The Hessians were mercenaries hired by the British during the American Revolutionary War. They quickly distinguished themselves during the New York and New Jersey campaign, which we were just talking about, and the battles of Long Island and White Plains. They were known for their discipline in, in battle as well as their brutally brutality during it. They were schooled in European warfare and were some of its best students. Each man who was enlisted was molded into a powerful soldier capable of withstanding some of the harshest conditions, most like our SEALs are now and our Marines and our Green Berets Mm. and our Delta Force. (laughs) Why do we need everybody else? (laughs) However, because I'm in favor of just having a Navy and merging everybody into the Navy and and feeling on that's a constitutional and getting our people out of the wars all over the place. 
However, European warfare was not as effective in America as it was in the old world, and many times these brave men found themselves surprised by an enemy they did not respect. The most notable surprise was the Battle of, uh, Battles of Trenton and Princeton, in which General Washington launched a surprise attack, which we just talked about, and that's why I wanted to go back there. Now, the, the thing that I found interesting on this was discipline and training of the Hessian soldier. So this is significant what force, this force that we were up against. The British used the Hessians quite frequently in all the wars that they were at. So at seven years recruitment, at seven years of age, every male would register for the military, and this is in Germany. At 16 years of age, each male would appear for examination. The recruiter would then decide if their physical body was able to withstand a military life. After their examination at 16, they would return every Easter for a re-examination until they were 30 years old. During the recruitment process, they would decide if the individual was indispensable to the economy of Hesse-Kassel, which is a, a province in, in uh, Germany. Recruitment was meant for all classes, but typically it was the lower classes that would end up serving the military. This was typical of all armies during the 18th century, except ours. The proportion of males who served in the Hesse Castell military was one out of 15. Recruitment was also forced upon some individuals. School dropouts, wanderers, and others were often forced into the military. The Hessian system of discipline was different from the British system in that they made more use of corporal punishment. Now, as a new country, as in the Revolutionary War, people have to remember that we were British subjects. And we had been fighting in the French and Indian Wars before George Washington got his training. So he was fighting the British way. And the Hessians didn't fight the British way. We didn't know any other way until uh, Marion uh, started. Uh, was he a colonel or a general? He was the Swamp Fox. I don't I know. know. He had a rank. He was just the Swamp Fox. <laughs> right. And it wasn't until that, you know, and also some militias up north in the woods started using guerrilla tactics like the natives did. We fought just like the British. But because we had different terrain and we had no, we know the terrain and the British didn't, that's when those guerrilla tactics started coming out and they were more effective. Okay, um, let's see. The most common punishment was 30 lashes for more serious offenses and the soldiers were forced to run through the gauntlet in which they were pummeled by their peers. If the charges were very serious, then they would be forced to run the gauntlet many times. The weapon used for these punishments was the dreaded cudgel, which the British deemed unfit to punish animals with. Uh, let's see. The Hessian soldier was drilled constantly and endlessly conditioned. Men became proud of their military accomplishments, and their discipline was displayed on the battlefield quite often. And you, uh, we might not get to the Battle of White Plains, so uh, let's see. The Hessians, took, the Hessians, during the Battle of White Plains, Hessians took heavy casualties, but remained calm and continued their march toward the Americans. They marched through grass that was on fire and heavy gunfire. Their discipline led to victory for the British and the respect of their enemy. So they were, uh, they were like special forces, basically. Um, so I wanted you to get a an idea of what the Americans were up against when they battled in, in, in Trenton. It was not easy, right, Dev? No, the Hessians were, they, they amazed the people, and that's why the, uh, the New Jersey folk 
had such a hard time with the Hessians. I mean, the Hessians came in and I mean, they were killing machines. That's what they were. Yep. They 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 broke things and and killed people. You know, and that's what they did. And the rape, pillage, and plunder um, was not a foreign concept to them. And they really, when they came, they were like locusts. I mean, they came through and just destroyed everything. And what most people don't realize, the Hessians, the, the greatest enemies we had were what the British used, not the actual British soldiers themselves. They used the Hessians and they used the natives. The natives were brutal. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, they used to smash. We did, we did a story on one of these ladies. They were smashing babies against a tree. Well, yeah, yeah. Because they, and the reason, and I brought this up on other shows, because their reasoning was that they didn't want the white man to procreate, okay, or, or like, you know, babies grow up to be men and be their enemies. Right. But they had no problems taking the females and the young children as slaves. Right. They just didn't want the babies. I mean, that's horrific to me. Well, it is. It is. And that's, you know, that that was... You see, that, people that don't know history don't realize that that was the way of the world, you know, since the beginning of time. It's only in the recent modern era that war has changed to where, thing, you know, certain things are not allowed. I mean, yeah, the the British... They had the gentleman soldier, you know. I mean, it was the gentleman's rule. But still, the rest of the world, you know, they were pretty, um, well, they were, oh, awful. It's just terrible things that they did. And, you know, and if the enemy didn't do it, kind of like today with the our enemy, the Muslims there, the Islam fascists, um, you know, they, they look at us as weak because we don't, you know, cut the heads off of our enemy, such things. Okay, so we can get back to her diary. Her okay, journal. I'm going to flip over now because um, there, uh, in this other article over at Women's History, uh, no, wait a minute, the Women of the American Revolution, they have a, a few other entries. Uh, let's see, they have December 16th, which they didn't have in the other one. Um, right. so, uh, it says, about noon this day, a very terrible account of thousands coming into town. And remember, as I read in the Battle of Trenton, coming up to the battle, you know, the, the people were all over the place. And now actually to be seen off Gallows Hill, my incautious son caught up the spyglass and was running towards the mill to look at them. I told him it would be liable to misconstruction, but he prevailed on me to allow him to gratify his curiosity. He went, but returned much dissatisfied, for no troops could he see. As he came back, poor poor Dick took the glass, and resting it against a tree, took a view of the fleet. Both were observed by the people on board, who suspected it was an enemy who was watching their motions. They manned a boat and sent her on shore. A loud knocking at my door brought me to it. I was a little fluttered and kept locking and unlocking that I might get my ruffled face a little composed. At last I opened it, and half a dozen men, all armed, demanded the key of the empty house. I asked what they wanted there. They replied, to search for a damn Tory who had been spying on, spying at them from the mill. The name of a Tory so near my own door seriously alarmed me, for a poor refugee, dignified by that name, had claimed the shelter of my roof, 
and was at that very time concealed like a thief in the auger hole. I rang the bell violently, the signal agreed upon if they came to search, and when I thought he had crept into the hole, I put on a very simple look and exclaimed, Bless me, I hope you are not Hessians. Do we look like Hessians? asked one rudely. Indeed, I don't know. Did you never see a Hessian? No, never in my life, but they are men and you are men and maybe Hessians for aught I know. But I'll go with you into Colonel Cox's house, though indeed it was my son at the mill. He is but a boy and meant no harm. He wanted to see the troops. So I marched at the head of them, opened the door, and searched every place, but we could not find the Tory. Strange where he could be. We returned, they greatly disappointed. I pleased to think my house not suspected. The captain, a smart little fellow named Shippen, said he wished they could see the spyglass. So Dick produced it and very civilly desired his acceptance of it, which I was sorry for, so as I often amused myself looking through it. They left us and searched James Varys and the two houses and the two next houses, but no Tory could they find. This transaction reached the town, and Colonel Cox was very angry and ordered the men on board. In the evening, I went to town with my refugee and placed him in other lodgings. I was told today of a design to seize upon a young man in town as he was esteemed a Tory. I thought a hint would be kindly received, and as I came back, called upon a friend of his and told him. Next day, he was out of the reach of the gondolas. The next day, more news, great news, very great news. The British troops actually at Mount Holly, guards of militia placed at London and York bridges, Gondola men in arms patrolling the street, diligent search making for firearms, ammunitions, and Tories. Another attempt last night to enter into our Smith house. Early this morning, J.B. sent in to beg I would let my son go a few miles out of town on some business for him. I consented, not knowing of the formidable, formidable doings uptown. When I heard of it, I felt a mother's pangs for her son all the day. But when night came and he did not appear, I made no doubt of his being taken by the Hessians. A friend made my mind easy by telling me he had passed through the town where the dreadful Hessians were said to be playing the very mischief. It is certain there were numbers of them at Mount Holly, but they behaved very civilly to the people, excepting only a few persons who actually were in rebellion, as they termed it, whose goods they injured. This evening, every gondola man sent on board with strict orders not to set a foot on the Jersey Shore again. So far, so good. And then December 27th. This evening, about 3,000 of the Pennsylvania militia and other troops landed in the neck and marched into town with artillery, baggage, etc., and are quartered in the inhabitants. An officer spent the evening with us and appeared to be in high spirits, talked of engaging the English as a very trifling affair, nothing so easy as to drive them over the North River, etc., not considering that there is a god of a battle as well as a god of peace who may have given them the late advantage in order to draw them out to meet the chastisement that is reserved for them. December 29th, this morning the soldiers at the next house prepared to depart, and as they passed my door they stopped to bless and thank me for the food I sent them. I received it not as my due, but as belonging to my master, who had reached a morsel to them by my hand. And then we get into June. So that that was, around, you know, the, the Battle of Trenton was going on at the time, New Jersey was being inundated with British and Hessians, and George Washington was coming over the Delaware to smack the Hessians a good one, which he did. And then, um, not much, you know, not much later, the the British British and Hessians left New Jersey. Okay, so we did December, and then we have two other entries in January. 
Um, let me see. Yeah. Yeah, December. Okay, and then you have two other ones in January by her. Yes, okay, so let's see. Let me look back and forth here. Oops, wrong one. There we go. Um, all right, back over to the other one. Uh, January 4th. The prisoners taken by our troops are sent to Lancaster Jail. A number of sick and wounded brought into town calls upon us to extend a hand of charity towards them. Several of my soldiers left the next house and returned to the place from whence they came upon my questioning them pretty close. I brought several to confess that they had run away, being scared at the heavy firing on the third. There were several pretty innocent-looking lads among them, and I sympathized with their mothers when I saw them preparing to return to the Army. Well, you know, it's always... It doesn't matter what time period you're in. <laughs> you know, the, the mothers of the the young that go off to war. Um, let's see. Now... January or June 14th. Wait a minute. Yeah, June 14th is her next. Okay, well let, let me let's just talk about this for a little bit before you go to June 14th. And I want you to, to read the one from the American Revolution because it's a lot longer than the one from the Women's History. Have a more detail. Now, just to discuss this a little bit, this all happened in the, the dead of winter, right? Yes. And they pretty much left her alone which I find curious because she doesn't really say why. Well, she was determined not to to leave her house. And she seemed like a spunky little thing. I mean, there she was with uh, soldiers at her door with her little child. You know, I mean, I'm sure from the the ship they saw the the reflection of the light off the the spyglass. And, you know, they didn't know if it was just a kid, that it was just a kid looking at them, you know, to try to see. They thought maybe it was, you know, the the rebels, as they called the patriots, uh, spying on them. So, but she goes right up to the door, you know, she gets herself composed, goes right up to the door and, and, and acts, you know, innocent, totally innocent and ignorant. And, of course, at this time... Men didn't think of women as being capable of politics or warfare or, you know. They weren't a threat. Yeah. They didn't see them as a threat. So they just, she played it really well. So, you know, level, level-headed level woman. And, I mean, she she was hiding a Tory, you know, a Tory refugee. But then she had... I, I, I would think the New Jersey militia, the ones that had run away from the battles in the next house, and then these soldiers come to her house, you know, all, all through two weeks. I mean, dear Lord. And, and she writes so glibly about it, you know. <laughs> it just amazed me. Well, and every time we do another lady, they they all amaze me because on both sides they were just courageous and they had to endure a lot and it didn't matter if they were wanted to stay with the British or they didn't want to stay with the British. They pretty much went through similar experiences because of this war. Yeah. And the other thing is that she was a Quaker. She was a pacifist. So she had no control and that's why I read about the Quakers. 
because of her belief system. She had no control over what was going to happen to her or how she was going to be taken, you know, mm-hmm. how, who, who was going to, you know, accuse her of being a loyalist or, you know, take stuff from her. She had no control over that because of her belief system. That's right. And that's something that's very important to, to find out. A lot of Quakers did, behind the scenes, help the Patriots because they thought that the what the British was doing to the colonists was worse, was an abomination against God. And a lot of them did go in for and help the Patriots, and they had to sneak it because they didn't want to be thrown out of their community. But for the most part, they didn't. And even if you think about John Dickinson, yeah. I mean, he protested this to the very end. He walked out before even the declaration was written because he was not going to do it because he was a Quaker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And But, you know, they, the, the Quaker women um, and the men took care of the wounded. I mean, that, they did a lot. Um, they opened their houses to be hospitals and, you know, uh, they let the they, – they helped the wounded and they fed people and clothed people. That's how they they could, with good conscience, you know, be involved in in the in the uh, conflict. But they would not take up arms. Though Nathaniel Green did a pretty good job of it. <laughs> so, um, so there she is. I mean, she's going to stay in the house, by God. She's not giving up her house. The other houses are empty. And as they said, New Jersey, you know, the Burlington and Trenton were emptying out. Trenton was a mess after the, the battle. And, um, you know, luckily it didn't come into Burlington. But, the, you know, the soldiers were all, people were going this way and that way. And the soldiers were coming in and, and going through and, um, there's there's ships out on the 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 river, you know the the gondola gentlemen as she calls them, you know Tory hunters, and so it's like she's right in the thick of it actually. I mean she wasn't well, far away she from the only only other theater that was like this um, was the, around South Carolina because of the Charleston area and coming up from the Georgia coast. I mean we we those poor women as the British were coming and they would like run from island to island, remember? Yeah. Yeah. Go from. And then, then the British, because they knew the British were going to leave because they were trying to get to Charleston. Well, they knew they were going to leave. So they would go to a neighbor's house, you know, and go through all this mud, right? Yeah. And, and then they would stay with that neighbor or wherever they could shelter themselves until that band of army left. And then they would go back to their house. And it's exactly the same here in New Jersey. Those, these were the only two places that were this chaotic during the Revolutionary War. Yeah. yeah it's, um, I mean, it was bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, like what you're describing right now in New Jersey, it was bad like that outside of Charleston. Yeah. <laughs> it was just, it was chaos, total chaos. Yeah. Because you have to remember, most of the battles, um, you know, a lot of it was just harassing the British troops and the British troops. You know, they had um, small, you know, skirmishes. You know, the, the large battles, and they happened in, in farmers' fields. And, you know, you look out your backyard and down to the South 40 there, and there's a battle. Well, 
on, you know? <laughs> well, and it was different because, like you said, um, well, there was, there was a couple of different types of battles, and we've been getting into it. And this, like you're saying, going back and forth, you know, between West New Jersey and New York and Delaware and, you know, total chaos. Yeah. But then, like, when the Battle of New York and, like, the Battle of Philadelphia and the Battle of Boston, I mean, they were just big conflicts that ended. You know, the British got, went in. There was tons of loyalists in these places. And they just, you know, they said, good, you come in and, and they conquered them. And then the Americans ran away. It wasn't this back and forth, back and forth, back and forth like this. Yeah. Yeah, and of I course... Mean, am I, am and I doing it right? Am I saying it right? Pretty much. I mean, you, you know, everybody thinks of, you know, because you talk, they talk about the big battles so much that, you know, all eight years was were these humongous battles all over the place. And that wasn't it at all. I mean, northern the northern colonies had it in the beginning and then pretty much nothing after Saratoga and then they went south and <clears throat> excuse me and they you know they 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 went up and down between Jersey Delaware well Jersey was was a way to get down from like New York down south and they went back and forth up and down the the uh you know the the southern part chasing each other all over the place and oh. Yeah, and you you have to realize also when I when it talked about the Battle of Trenton in that article, um, uh, they talk about the rumors of battles. I mean, people were constantly hearing things because they didn't have the communications that we have, and you know, a, a rumor gets started, and then you know, it flies all over the place. Um, with riders coming and going and news, of course, everybody wanted news, and so they they heard all these rumors. So it's like, oh my God, we're on, you know, we're going to be under attack. We're going to be under attack, and it wouldn't happen. And then you know they wouldn't hear about the one that was happening. And I mean, imagine the chaos and the and the the constant what's going to happen next and when. Well, and also she was all alone. This yeah. is another, we don't know anything about her, her husband or anything because we, like we tell everyone, sometimes we can't find the things out. There's not enough information out there on them for what, for multiple reasons. But she had four she kids. Killer. She's got four little kids. She's yeah. all by herself. You know, and I can imagine and it's another reason why they would have left her alone is because she has some medical skills. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and she gave out food and and stuff, and you and know. This is winter. This and is they understood the Quaker. They did. They understood, you know, by this time they understood that the Quakers, because um, they had come up against them in Pennsylvania, they understood the Quakers were neutral. You know, as long as they weren't caught being spies, or you know, as long as the British didn't catch them helping the Patriots, and the Patriots didn't help them catching, you know, catching catch them helping the British, they were pretty much left alone because they understood that, you know, they're not, they, they're not going to do this. So. Interesting, interesting time. Now, you know what I don't understand is why on both of these sites is they go right from December to June. Like, she oh, didn't write anything? Maybe they, maybe, um... Well, I, I, I couldn't find the full journal. I, I don't know if it was lost and this is all they have because it, was, it wasn't it was ever published. It was just, um, 
you know, they, they just published the parts that they had. So, uh, you know, as with everything, yeah, it might, parts of it might be in somebody's attic. You never know. <laughs> they don't know what they have. So, but it doesn't say, um, it just says excerpts from the journal and whether, whether, uh, they there is a the, the full journal somewhere or not, I don't know. Okay. So Okay, well, let's finish up with her. Okay. All right, now this is June fourteenth, seventy seven. So it's it's six months later. And she writes By a person from Bordentown we hear twelve expresses came in there today from camp some of the gondola men and their wives being sick and no doctor in town to apply to, they were told Mrs. Morris was a skillful woman and kept medicines to give to the poor. And notwithstanding their late attempts to shoot my poor boy, they ventured to come to me in a very humble manner, begged me to come and do something for them. At first I thought they might design to put a trick on me, get me aboard their gondola, and then pillage my house, as they had done some others. But on asking where the six sick folks were, I was told they were lodged in the governor's house. So I went to see them. There were several, both men and women, very ill with fever, some said, the camp or putrid fever. There were They were broke out in blotches, and on close examination, it appeared to be the itch fever. I treated them according to art, and they all got well. I thought I had received all my pay when they thankfully acknowledged my kindness, but lo, in a short time afterwards, a very rough, ill-looking man came to the door and asked for me. When I went to him, he drew me aside and asked if I had any friends in Philadelphia. The question alarmed me, supposing there was some mischief meditated against that poor city. However, I calmly said, I have an ancient father, some sisters, and other near friends there. Well, said the man, do you wish to hear from them or send anything by way of refreshments to them? If you do, I'll take charge of it and bring you back anything you may send for. I was very much surprised and thought to be sure he only wanted to get provisions to take to the gondolas, but when he told me his wife was one of those I had given medicine to and this was the only thing he could do to pay me for my kindness, my heart leaped with joy and I set about preparing something for my dear absent friends. A quarter of beef, some veal, fowls, and flour were soon put up and about midnight, the man called and took them aboard his boat. He left them at Robert Hopkins at the point whence my beloved friends took them to town. Two nights afterward, a lock, loud knocking at our front door greatly alarmed us, and opening the chamber window, we heard a man's voice saying, Come down softly and open the door, but bring no light. There was something mysterious in such a call, but we concluded to go down and set the candle in the kitchen. When we get to the front door, we asked, Who are you? The man replied, a friend, open quickly. So the door was opened, and who should it be but our honest gondola man with a letter, a bushel of salt, a jug of molasses, a bag of rice, some tea, coffee, sugar, and some cloth for a coat of, for my poor boys, all sent by my kind sisters. This just made me choke up. How did our hearts and eyes overflow with love to them, and thanks to our Heavenly Father for such seasonable supplies. May we never forget it. Being now so rich, we thought it our duty to hand out a little to the poor around us who were mourning for want of salt. So we divided the bushel and gave a pint to every poor person who came for it, having abundance left for our own use. 
Indeed, it seemed to us as if our little store was increased by distribution, like the bread broken by our Savior to the multitude. I mean, that just, in the thick of it, you know, and this is what our government doesn't understand these days, is that we, we take care of our own, and we take care of those around us. If they would only get out of the way, we could we could help so many. Um, I mean, this 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 man who had been well, basically the enemy. I mean, he, she she gave a, of herself to help their wives. They brought them this kindness, and then brought them food back. You know, I mean, he took he took a dangerous course doing this for this woman who saved his wife. I mean, it's just so touching. And, you know, you think about it, too. Again, (laughs) I keep thinking if something really bad happens, how am I going to get salt? Well, yeah, salt was so important for preservation of food. They wanted to make salt, and the ancient peoples tried to make salt a currency. Yes, yes. But it dissolved in water, so it was useless. Yeah. Um, but, but it yeah, was very, very did. important. Yeah, they really did. They they wanted to make it a currency, and a lot of people don't know that little trivial mm-hmm. fact there. But um, all of this stuff is, in, if you think about what you do daily or what you eat daily or what you have around your house daily, mm-hmm. and they didn't have that, so you're right. It was they were giving of the, the little bit that they had in, from from that they had gotten from her sister, but the sister was also giving them a little bit from what they had of their own. Yes, yes, and and this is this is how they survived, and and this is what is so let you know it it comes out. I mean, my God, um, what the media does not report because they can only report the negative about America. Um, Very rarely do they report on, you know, the American spirit, which is still alive and thriving. Um, You know, I I can't imagine um, having something and knowing other people don't have enough And, and not, you know, if I have more than enough, or even if I have enough, I would sacrifice some so that someone else could have some too. I, I just can't imagine not doing that. Well, and you know, notice too. I know, but I'm bringing the same thing up that we're not completely garbage yet as far as a nation and a people. Uh, you notice you didn't hear much about what went on down in Louisiana, now did you? Nope. You know why? They were white people. And not only that, they were helping each other. Yes. Well, and like, they weren't wait, they weren't waiting for the government. Oh, you you didn't hear about Mississippi during Katrina either. No, you did not. Because they rebuilt their whole they rebuilt what they did in Mississippi is they ended up rebuilding the community but they didn't rebuild it in the same spot. Yeah. And there was actually a uh what do you call it? Uh, I don't even know if it's still on, a uh, reality show mm-hmm. where these young men would take parts of the buildings and all the stuff that that was not salvageable and put it out in the ocean and make a reef. Have we heard anything about the reef thriving or what? No. No, of course not. People were bringing in heavy equipment. 
there's a, and also at that time there was other states surrounding. I think it was North Carolina was surrounding South Carolina, and South Carolina got hit really bad a couple of years ago. And the, the two surrounding states said, "Don't worry about, don't worry about the government coming in because our states we're we're going to offer our states national guard to help you, our states whatever we can give you to help." And of course, the government came in and said, "No, we're going to help them squash the whole thing." Mm-hmm. But that's what would happen. Yeah, it's like a friend of just let us. A friend of mine who's a Vietnam vet got in touch with me <clears throat> and that his his uh he belongs to the DAV, the Disabled American Veterans Association, and they were collecting money to send to Louisiana to help the military families there that were you know affected by by the floods and everything. And I mean, he they raised a whole bunch of money here from Virginia, a little, you know, a little place here in Virginia. A, a group of people got together to help the military families, which we know don't have much to begin with because the military gets paid squat. Um, so this is the spirit of America, which the Bolsheviks are so trying to crush. This is the spirit of America that founded this country. And damn if they'll take it away from us. I know. And this period that we're talking about right now was, uh, and this is from com. this particular period where she was involved in this, it was called the crisis of the revolution because it seemed the American army could not stand against the British and support for the revolution came to a low ebb until Washington reversed the military and political situation by the victories in Trenton and Princeton. And um, during the crisis, New Jersey, like many states, did not always perform well. The militia in large part refused to turn out to fight with Washington. Many began to refuse to accept continental paper money. Yes, we had paper money back then, people. We did. It was called the Continental, and it was worthless. Yeah. <laughs> Just like our flyaway money is going to be worthless soon. That This is what the Chinese call paper money, flyaway money. Um, and hundreds a day went to the British to sign allegiance papers. Much of this was caused by the poor showing of the army, which had performed sometimes poorly in the battles for New York. All the states at that time found support for the level the revolution decreasing. Still, some militia men resisted the British, such as the ones who ambushed Cornet Geary and his dragoons south of Flemington in mid-December of 1776. So um, this was a very bleak time. I mean, not only for uh, her and what, you know, what the people in New Jersey were going through, but the whole nation, because their eyes were turning to New Jersey and New York, and it wasn't going well. And he was losing uh, support even in the Continental Congress. Yep. Yes. And he sent out um, this. This is a wonderful thing. He sent what George Washington sent out a uh, a notice to, um, and he sent them with all the militia officers that he had. It was this little notice that says, "To the friends of America in the state of New Jersey." The Army of the American States, under my command, being lately greatly reinforced, 
and having again entered the state of New Jersey. This is, I think, after the Battle of Trenton. Yeah, yeah, it was after the Battle of Trenton before Princeton. I most warmly request the militia of said state at this important crisis to evince their love of their country by boldly stepping forth and defending the cause of freedom. The inhabitants may be assured that by a manly or spirited conduct they may now relieve their distinguished state from the depredations of our enemies. I have therefore dispatched Colonels Nielsen, Majors Taylor, Van Ember, and Freelingheisen, together with some of the other gentlemen of your state, to call together and embody your militia, not doubting but successful, attend our endeavors. George Washington. You know, and it, it just amazes me how how gracious he was through this whole thing. Yes. I mean, he really was. He, and, and we keep saying that the leader for our time, a leader for our time, there's certain men and certain women that need to be in, in place at a certain time in history. And we, I was talking to somebody yesterday, I mean, I had no, I didn't, I wasn't a fan of George Bush, you know, because yesterday was not the anniversary of 9-11, the 15th year anniversary of 9-11. I know we're going to get a little bit off of, of history right now for the end of the show, but I don't care because I have, have to mention 9-11. Yes. And I didn't agree with, I mean, he really did leave us in a shambles. He laid, he laid President Bush and the Congress, they laid the groundwork for this atrocity that is now our government. They did. But, he was the leader. He was the wartime leader. He just was. And unfortunately, like we were talking about the Patriot Act, it, it, it's unbelievable. Like you say, government always takes power to itself and it keeps it once we, the people, give it to us. Mm-hmm. The Patriot Act was supposed to sunset two, two years after. That's how they got everybody on board because they, they said, well, it's going to sunset in two years, so it's no big deal. Yeah, we're 15 years later. We don't need the Patriot Act anymore. No, no. There's a lot of things that are supposed to sunset that haven't yet. And on top of that, like with George Washington and with the Swamp Fox, he was the, he was the man for the time. And George Bush was the man for the time. And I don't care about all the stuff around the Iraq War. We should have never went in. That's the, look, I don't care about that. For one thing, what they should have done is they should have split the country up so that each had their own area. And then if they want to battle it out, let them do it. Yep. You know? And we went in there for a reason, and the people that came after Bush just screwed it all up, and I don't care what anybody says. Oh, no. Hillary Clinton owns it. And, again, like with Washington, I'm going to put in a little bit of politics. Donald Trump is just a guy for this time. Just get over it. He just is. Because if we go anywhere near what what's going on right now, we're doomed. We're just doomed. So as it, and also, you know, you gotta get leaders in here and I'm gonna push the Patriot Club. You gotta get leaders that don't wanna be leaders, ladies and gentlemen. You don't everyone's gonna have some sort of an ego because you you, you can't get into politics without having some kind of a backbone. But you don't want these people who crave it so much that they would do anything to have it. That's not you, what you want as a leader. And then we're not supposed to be led anyway. But you want somebody who really doesn't want to do it. Yep. That they say have no choice because they feel so much for their country or you convince them, that, no, we need you. 
Does that make any sense? Well, yeah, that was George Washington's whole thing. He didn't want to be chair in chief. He didn't even think he was up for it. And then he, long eight years, um, if you ever read the the speech he gave the um, colonels, the officers that were going to, you know, march on Congress and basically strangle them to get their pay, um, when he he was there and he took out his his eyeglasses and they had never seen him wear eyeglasses, but he said, "This hasn't only you know turned my hair gray; it has also taken my eyesight." Um, you know, after eight, ten long years of of him being the commander in chief, then he went home to be a farmer. Martha was so glad to see him, have her have him home. And then, uh, but a few years later, oh, we want you to be president, you know. And he had, he said, "I will. My country calls me. I don't want to. I just want to be a farmer. But my country calls me." And he had to tell Martha. (laughs) And Martha went right. Yes. Your well, it was the same thing with Thomas Jefferson. They kept they kept electing him to office in absentia. I know. <laughs> and he would come back from being a diplomat, and they're freaking all of a sudden he's like in a council member, or he's the president of the the Congress in in Virginia. So, I mean, he wasn't even there. They did. They they would elect, they would nominate them, and then vote for them in, and then they weren't even there. It happened to John Adams too. <laughs> I don't want to go, <laughs> but you're elected. Oh, great! <laughs> I know. Oh, I when when uh, when we uh, highlighted uh, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams with their wonderful, wonderful wives. Um, yeah. So again, you you want somebody that doesn't want to be there. Yes, they'll leave. But, and and because they'll leave, they want to leave. You know, everyone got on Michelle Bachman's butt so bad about her, you know, just one term in Congress. I was like, woohoo. Yes. She's we, like, I said, that means that you were good because she came up with, so, came against so much opposition. She was like, I'm out of here. I can do better someplace else. Right. Which she has been. She's working with wall builders. Yep. And she's going to all these conferences and speaking. And she, I think she even got up a, uh, some kind of a committee for conservatives. I mean, she's like, you can't get anything done here. And she's right. Yep. This, and that's as it should be. Um, the, everybody keeps saying, well, if only Congress would do their job. Well, I believe their job right now is to go through all the laws on the books and, and start voting them out. We have so many laws that are so no longer valid, no longer necessary, no longer even appropriate. And and like I said, so many things that should have been sunsetted are they just it's it's they're lazy. It's it's easier to to vote you know, vote them in to continue than sit down and go, look, do we really need this? Let's sunset it. And it's like the budget. They can't get a budget together to save their soul, so they continually, you know, well, we'll put it up for three months. We'll we'll put it up for three more months. And then, you know, when we get to the budget, then we won't do this anymore. And it's ridiculous. We don't want the Congress to do much. We don't want the president to legislate, nor the courts. That's not their jobs. We need to get back to our checks and balances 
and and realize, um, you know, if you've got kids, start educating them on why this this country was founded, and and these women who took their their lives in their hands to to uh, support the cause, and and even the even the ones that didn't believe in the war. Um, yeah, there are a lot of loyalists. You have to realize about loyalists. Loyalists weren't all, you know, they became the enemy because, yeah, there was the two sides there, one with the British and one with the the the, the rebels. Um, but the thing was, many loyalists um, wanted to stay with the king, but they weren't happy with what he was doing. They wanted to get him to stop doing what he was doing, but not leave the British Empire. You know, which is the Patriots said, no way, Jose, and there was no no two words about it. Um, so it wasn't as cut and dried as, as so many think. And you, and the fact that we became a country is a freaking miracle to begin with. I mean, God, when you read about, you know, 1776, what a year that was. I mean, we had the Declaration of Independence, and Congress started fighting amongst themselves, and George Washington's army was damn near decimated through different things. And even the people were going, oh, this is not good, no no more, don't want this, uh-uh. And, and, but he rallied and kept on, and he, he won Trenton, and then he, Princeton, and and uh, the British, you know, kind of had a sore backside. And that's when, in 77, the the um, the British uh, Parliament started turning against the war in England. The support was waning there, too, because the British Army was getting its butt kicked. And then the French came in, and, the, you know, Spain came in, and, all the guys that had been out trying to find money for the war came back with money for the war and support. And the British are going, oh, geez, we didn't expect this. We expected this to last a year, you know. So we can do amazing things, and I know this because we have, you know. And if you know history, it's not all terrible Americans doing terrible things to the poor oppressed that we keep in chains and cages. No, 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 no. That that isn't that isn't our country. Well, and we're getting towards the end of the show. We got about five minutes left, so I just wanted to tell everyone to go to the Patriots Pub, PatriotsPub.us, PatriotsPub.us, and download it. Put it in your iPad, whatever. It is a historical accurate, non-political endeavor. It was created over three years, of, and it is about the Constitutional Convention, day by day, in the founders' own words, recited by three self-taught historians, my husband being one of them, Tori LaPlante and Tim Curlin, who actually got uh, Deb and I together, and he's no longer with us, uh, God bless his soul, but it is about the Continental Convention, and you need to know the history of our nation. This is the only way we're going to get this thing turned around, is by having knowledge. And it is very, very, very important right now. And as always, I let that take us out. Okay. Well, 
pray for our troops. We lost another um, one of our own this weekend, September 10th, um, in Kuwait, of all places. And uh, so our kids are still out there in terrible places doing dangerous things, and um, our vets are here listening to the suits tell them that there's really no problems with the VA hospitals. So your prayers are needed. You need to watch their six. And uh, and for all the first responders who are under attack right now, those in blue, those in green, those in white, those in all different colors, you know, pray for them. Pray that, uh, you know, go down to your local police station and, and, and say thank you or go to your firehouse and say thank you. And, you know, if you see an EMT, say thank you. Um they're the ones that step into the muck so uh, we can be safe. So, anyways, y'all have a good week. And I'm sorry about the technical difficulties, and hopefully we won't have any more of those. But you never know. Oh, technology is so wonderful. Susan and I appreciate so much. But we're so glad we could be with you, and I hope you enjoyed the show. And we shall be back next week with another Amazing woman of the American Revolutionary War. Y'all have a good week. Thanks for coming by. Good night. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.